Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. And turn to Leviticus 17. We finally made it out of Leviticus 16. What uh, I intended to be kind of a, an overview during the fall of a quick look at Leviticus has turned into just a little bit more than that, as it usually does with me. Leviticus 16, though, is the pinnacle, is the high point of Leviticus, and just really the Old Testament, as we come to consider the Day of Atonement where God provides for us a way for His people, His children, to come before Him. And so we had to take three weeks just to really come to understand not only that day of atonement in the eyes of Israel, but also how it pointed to Christ and what it means for you and I. So if you have not catch those, I I just go to www.orangevilla.org and you can find those three weeks of messages. I just just recommend them to you as we just continue. Today we're going into Leviticus 17 with a strange command from God. It's almost apropos that it's kind of like Halloween Sunday, so to speak, because it kind of has something to do with drinking and blood. I almost titled this a selective vampirism, but I figured that that probably wasn't a good one to put on there. So we'll just do that as the unofficial slogan of today's. Let me ask you, have you ever been at a funeral, a time of solemnness, you know, time of where you're to you know, just be solemn, but then just find yourself burst out in laughing? Or in a moment where it's inappropriate to laugh, but you find yourself laughing, but then you cannot ever stop. Have anyone ever had that type of moment? I've had that where maybe it's at a wedding or something. You know you're not supposed to, but something funny happens or it's in your head. You know, sometimes I just think funny thoughts, as, as one man once said. And all of a sudden you just laugh and you cannot stop yourself. And all of a sudden it just bursts forth and it just gets all over the place. And before you know it, other people are doing it and the solemnness is broken. Or a time where it's something that you're to, it's an event in which it's supposed to be awe and reverence. But after a while it loses its specialness. I know that there was a time early in my ministry, as I grew up like most people, you did communion on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, some churches do it every, every Sunday. Uh, but there got to be a time early in my ministry, I thought, man, I'm just going through the motions. And I just feel like everyone else is going through the motions. So we're just going to stop doing communion uh, once, a, once a month, and we're just going to do it during specials. And there are special times of the year, so we'd choose out three or four or five special times to do that. And even then, it just seemed like it becomes routine. Eventually, uh, God convicted of me and realized that's not the way Scripture teaches us to do so. And so we're back to doing it once a month, which is, by the way, next, next Sunday, though I recommend that we do it. We obviously do it more than that, uh, again, on special days and things of that. But there's times where we forget how important something is. We forget the solemnness or what an event means. It could be an anniversary, it could be a birthday, it could be, you know, a wake, it could be all sorts of different things where we just lose the weight of what the moment or the event is. Well, I want to quickly review, again, maybe uh, for your point, maybe for those who may not have been able to attend our last three weeks of 
Leviticus 16 is we've been looking at God's redemption plan and God's redemption plan has been a temporary one that has been put in place so God's people can approach him, approach a holy God, sinful people approaching a holy God. And we saw that the pinnacle then was the day of atonement. And in there, you'll see there on the monitor is that Leviticus with the day of atonement foreshadows forgiveness of sin in the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. Leviticus is pointing to the one who will once for all take care of sin permanently. Now this is important because you and I must remember, and this is something that even we as, as Christians, as believers, as those who have attended church, forget or neglect in our thought process, is we must remember that God's holiness, and God is a holy God, if anything else, God is a holy God. There is nowhere in scripture that says God is love, love, love. God is kind, kind, kind. God is joy, joy, joy. But it does say, <coughs> excuse me, that God is holy, holy, holy. Be holy as I am holy. And so you and I must recognize that God is holy and God's holiness demands justice against rebellion and sin against his holiness. But that justice requires a penalty, a death, but yet God provided a sacrifice. But even in that sacrifice, mercy, God's mercy, provides a substitute. In Leviticus, God provides a substitute sacrifice to pay for the sins, the rebellion, our anger against God, and so that God's wrath may be satisfied. And a substitute, not only a substitute sacrifice, but God, as we saw last week, provided a substitute scapegoat to bear the sins of his people. However, as we know, this was only temporary. It had no power to deal with the forgiveness of sin and the removal of sins permanently. They had to do it every year, the Day of Atonement. Not only that, is he had given them rituals that they had to honor and recognize each and every day. The day of atonement that's found in chapter 16 of Vicus, though points to the one true substitute that would effectively and permanently deal with sin. The apostle John tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Jesus comes to offer himself once for all as the substitute sacrifice and as the substitute scapegoat. As the sacrifice, he bears the sins of God's children that brings the penalty of death that satisfies God's demand for justice. And as the scapegoat, he bears the sins of the children of God and removes the stain, the guilt, the shame of sin that brings us into reconciliation and peace with God. And that is where we should say amen, for that's what you and I need. In our scripture reading earlier of Landon, we read of the instructions of the apostles to the Gentile believers that they were to include to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, the first two charges are pretty clear. We would agree with those. But the last one seems kind of odd. In this week's passage in Leviticus 17, we read how that charge, how that command, how that instruction came to be. 
So with that, you're in Leviticus chapter 17. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. If you do not have a Bible, let us know. We'd love to get a free copy of God's Word into your hands. And so we do that. We do put them on the monitor from time to time. Today, we're going to be reading quite a bit of, actually, all of Leviticus 17 together. Look at it, verses 1 and 2. And these is on the monitor. And the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. So with that, Father, we're to pay attention. We're to open up our minds and our hearts to your spirit. For Father, these are the words of you, even here found in Leviticus, written to an ancient people in a land very far away in a time far removed from us with customs that we truly do not understand and maybe find strange. However, it has relevancy to us this morning as believers today here. And Father, one day we'll stand before you and give an account for these words. So Father, I pray that you just move distraction. Let me speak words that are edifying. Let us know the difference between my mere words and through the words of your scripture. And Father, I pray that we would respond to your spirit's work. And again, we just want to thank you for your word, that we can be here today and read it out loud and hear it, respond and rejoice. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now we've commented before in the series that this book is anchored by the phrase, and the Lord spake, and the Lord spoke. It's followed then by a command of Yahweh for the Hebrew children. Now that alone would be enough of a reason for Christians today to read and meditate on the book of Leviticus. And we've joked before that the book of Leviticus is one of those ones in which we start the year in our Bible reading. We're going to read through the Bible in a year, right? We get through Genesis. It's kind of exciting. Exodus, oh, we've all seen the movie. So it's kind of like putting it together. By the way, when you read Leviticus and you read about Moses, how many of you are picturing Charlton Heston? Who played him in the last one? Is it Christian Bale? So whichever generation you may be, we have that in our head. I don't even, I don't have no idea what I'm talking about now. I'm just, I got to stay with my notes. However, as we're reading then through Exodus, it's exciting. And then we get to the book of Leviticus. We might get through chapter one. And then by the time we're in chapter two, our eyes are glazing over. Sleep is coming and it's like a spiritual ambient, right? We're ready to fall asleep. And there goes our Bible reading plan. But as we've been sharing with us, as we started this in September, as we wanted to open up the book of Leviticus as a church because we believe it's an exciting book that yes, is very difficult, very strange, but yet it has a reality, a foreshadowing in there that's important for us to know and to understand. So the fact that he says the Lord spake is enough for you and I to take attention, pay attention, to read and meditate. We should stand up and pay attention anytime the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things and the almighty God speaks. Amen? We should. And what he, when he does say this and when he does speak, it's important. There's a command. There's a promise. There's a word of encouragement or an exhortation that will reveal more about who he is, about his character and about his person. And then what he requires from you and I. In this case, it seems like after giving the instructions on the atonement and its purpose and its rituals, Yahweh is saying, oh, by the way, one more thing. There's something else I need to share with you. That's what 17 in my mind seems to point to. It's almost like a parenthetical before we get into chapter 18 and some more of the holiness codes. 
It's in this chapter that God gives them some important instructions concerning the sacrifices with the Day of Atonement and that will relate to all the other sacrifices as well. In this chapter, God is going to list really the criteria for worship. The criteria for worship. In other words, what he's really concerned here, if you're taking notes, is the preservation of the atonement. The preservation and the importance of the atonement. So he's going to tell them two things. Sacrifice only at the tabernacle and with the priest. And then number two, do not eat blood. So first, let's go through the first one. And we're going to be kind of jumping around in here. But open your Bibles. We're in Leviticus chapter 17. And we're going to go to verse 5. And in verse 5, we're going to see a command that all sacrifices must be brought to the tabernacle. Look at verse 5. Now this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, out in the open. That they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and a sacrifice and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the front of the meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, that's a lot of words there that sometimes can, again, start to glaze over. But he's giving them instructions. You need to do the sacrifices to the tent, tent of meeting or what we, you and I would call the tabernacle. From now on was what he's saying. All sacrifices to Yahweh must be done according to God's command. They need to be brought to the tabernacle. They must be performed by the priest and they must be disposed of properly. Before all sacrifices were done in the open field, there was no tabernacle. There was no tent of meeting and they were done upon stone altars. Genesis portrays several of our biblical heroes doing just that. We read in Genesis chapter 8 verse 20 that after the flood, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some, of the every, took some of every clean animal and some of the, every clean bird and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Where did he do that? In an open field. He built an altar and did it there. There's no tabernacle. There's no temple. In Genesis 27, after the Lord had appeared to Abraham and said to your, offer, or to your offspring, I will give this land, the promise, of the, promise of, the, of the land of Canaan, that Abraham there built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country and to the east of Bethel and he pitched his tent. And on the west and on Aya on the east. And then again, he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. Scripture goes on to record that Isaac and Jacob followed in their father's footsteps by building altars wherever they went and settled and making sacrifices as Yahweh, as did Moses in the book of Exodus. Yahweh had actually previously instructed Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus 20. It's here on the monitor for you. He had said when they're doing it on the open field that the altar of earth you shall make for me. It needs to be of earth. And you sacrifice on it and your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep, your auction. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, he goes on to say, you shall not build it of hewn stones. In other words, you're not just cut and to shape the stones. Just take stones right as they are and build an altar. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You shall not go up to the steps to my altar, that your nakedness not to be exposed. In other words, it's not to be letting up like on a podium or a pulpit like this. 
However, this was before the building and the ordination of the tabernacle. The place that God now has instituted in the end of Exodus and Leviticus as the place where he will meet with his people. Now they were instructed, instructed only to bring their sacrifices to the tabernacle. Now, this was not going to be a simple request, but a command with a very strong warning for those who disobeyed. For look at verse 3 as we go backwards. Because God expects obedience from his children when it comes to worshiping him. Look at verse 3. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp. Okay, so remember, they're in a camp. So they, they had some animals, so they, they probably weren't meat eaters as you and I think of it, but there would be times when they would kill their, their livestock. So if you kill it within the camp or outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle the Lord, look what he says. Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man should be cut off from among his people. Now what he's talking about is if they're making an offering, if they're making a sacrifice. He's not talking here about necessary just preparing a meal. An unauthorized sacrifice could cause or result in death. As you recall, Aaron's two oldest sons were killed by Yahweh when they offered up unauthorized or strange to fire that God had not ordained. The children of Israel were to approach a holy God only through the place, the persons, and the properties that God had ordained. In other words, God expects us to worship as he has instituted, as he has called us to do. Any deviation from God's instructions were serious and final. You may call the young man who touched the uh, Ark of the Covenant as it was falling down. What did God do? Instantly killed him. In this case, whoever disobeyed God would be cut off from his people. Would be cut off. Now, to be cut off would mean to be expelled from the camp, from his family and the nation of Israel. It would be outside the covenant promises of God. In this case, disobedience was unforgivable. There was not a sacrifice they could do to atone for that. They were to be cut off. They would have to bear the guilt of his sins. No longer would Yahweh accept a sacrifice on their behalf. Now this would be devastating. God is driving home the point that we are to approach God on his terms and his terms only. Now you and I live in a world where everyone wants to come to God on their terms. But you and I must recognize that even in this symbolic thing that we're seeing here in Leviticus, it's pointing to God says, no, you must obey me, worship me as I have declared. For God expects obedience from his children. Now to you and I today, this may not make much sense and to be, if we're honest, it seems kind of harsh. We may counter, what does it matter where if they get the who, the what, and the why right? I mean, if they are truly making a sacrifice of the correct animal to Yahweh in order to glorify and honor him, what does it matter where they do it? The answer to that is in point number three. It's found in verse seven, where God's command is based on, his, on the promotion of his glory 
the prevention of idolatry and the protection of their salvation. Let's look at verse 7. He goes on to say, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. This shall be a statue forever for them throughout their generations. See, one of the things that you and I must keep in mind concerning the children of Israel at this time is that though they have been miraculously and powerfully delivered from slavery from the Egyptians, they still clung to their old habits, including pagan worship. We saw this in the response to the absence of Moses while he was on the Mount Sinai. In Exodus, if you want to turn to it quickly, in 32, we had read, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered together themselves to Aaron and said, up, make us gods so we shall go, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what he ha- or what has become of him. See, Yahweh knew very well that they were very hard-hearted and stubborn in their ways, rebellious continuously. They were grumbling, mumbling, and a fickle people who needed constant watching and exhorting. He knew that they would be tempted to return to their old ways of worship. So to prevent idolatry, he commands them to sacrifice at the tabernacle only. In other words, go where it is, go where the priests are, Follow these rules. Why? Because it will prevent you from falling back into your old ways. Now again, this served to promote the glory of Yahweh. It was done at the tabernacle where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. It brought their attention to God. It prevented them from idolatry, recognizing that all that are there, their prayers and all that was instituted there was to give glory to God. And it prevented them uh, or gave them protection of their salvation. They were not to be cut off from the people. To go back to the old ways of just doing it when you want to would just lead them astray. And we see through through the books of the Old Testament is that they very quickly move off into idolatry. Very with just a nudge. One of the things that you and I need to be acutely aware of is the fact that to worship anything other than God is demon worship. Scripture informs us that idols of those days were actually demons. Paul warns the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, what do I imply then, speaking of foods that were sacrificed in Corinth and in the Roman world? He says that foods offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. He recognizes, hey, as Christians, we recognize that idols are not real. They don't speak. They have no power. However, he says, no, I implied that what the pagans sacrifice, they actually are offering to demons and not to God. So just because someone believes into a different God, you and I can say, well, that God doesn't matter because it's not real. They do not have the truth. But you need to understand that behind that religion, behind that worship, behind that worldview are demons that are infusing their minds and their hearts, bringing in confusion and continual rebellion against the holy creator. He goes on to say, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Anything, let me share with you. This may be sounding harsh to you, but you need to understand this, as I do. 
Anything that takes the place of worship of the holy God is demon-fueled. Anything that replaces God as the object of your admiration in your life is sinful and considered idolatry. Yeah, we don't, we don't have idols. We don't have stone idols. But we all have idols of our hearts. You mean your money. It could be your career. It could be retirement. It could be your children. It could be your, your job. It could be entertainment. It could be pleasures. You need to be careful. Because all things behind it is the attack of Satan to draw us away from God. Idolatry is real. I like what John Calvin said, that our hearts are, uh, what is he, our idol factories. Just making factories. As soon as we cast down one idol, we're ready to make another. Number four, let's go on. In verse eight, we're going to see that God's command was to be followed by Israel and any who lived among them. And you shall say to them in verse eight, any one of the house of Israel or the strangers that sojourn among them or among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Why? Because the, in the tabernacle, the sacrifices were God's redemption plan to promote the glory of Yahweh, to turn their hearts uh, from idolatry and also the protection of salvation as they are not to be cut off from the promises of God. And so God is warning them, do not be led astray. I take worship uh, seriously. Now let's go to the second instruction, the one that's a little bit strange. And that's the one that concerning the eating and drinking of blood. And that's found in verse 10. What we see here is that inking, eating, inking, eating and drinking, either way, of animal blood is forbidden. Verse 10, if any one of the house of Israel, of the strangers who sojourn, who live among you, if they eat any blood, he says this, I will set my face against that person. Now, I don't know about you. I just want to take a moment. This is editorial note. This is outside my notes, so I don't know where it'll go. But we've been talking about the last few weeks about the wrath of God. We sung a little bit about it this morning. Remember Job, who can contend with God? Or the writer of Hebrew who says it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing, a fearful thing to fall in the hands of living God. Now before he said, I will cut you off, uh, that, that's active, but that just seems like, okay, I just won't have anything to do with you. But what does he say here? If you eat or drinkle, drink, drinkle, eat blood, he says, I will set my face against you. What does that mean? set my face against you. Well, that's an active phrase. Think about it. It's God getting in your face saying, I will put my face on you and I will contend with you myself. These are strong words. And he's writing this to people who are his covenant people to, he to whom he loves. He says, if you are to do this, I will set myself against you. So let's go on. That's editorial. I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off among his people. This is where it seems to get a little weird. I didn't really know that this was a thing, eating and drinking blood. However, in those days, especially with idol and pagan worship, drinking of the blood was usually part of the worship experience. However, Yahweh is going to put the kibosh on that practice for the Hebrew children and anyone who lives among them. 
God promises that he will set his face against them and cut them off of the nation, meaning that they would be outside of his covenant promises and his covenant love. In verse 12, we see that God gives them further instructions on the animals killed by other animals or by hunting. He goes on to say that, therefore, I had said in verse 12, I had said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. He's repeating it. It's redundant. It's the key to learning. But verse 13, anyone also of the people of Israel, the strangers who sojourn among you, who takes in any hunting, any beast or bird that may be eaten shall be poured out and cover it with the earth. From this passage, we read that animals killed in the hunt must have its blood poured out on the ground. The ESV study Bible notes that it was customary with heathen hunters when they killed any game to pour out the blood as an offering to the God of the hunt. The Israelites, to the contrary, were enjoined by this directive and banned from all such superstitious acts of idolatry. And I suppose we've all have seen movies or TV shows where they would take a young person out and they would hunt and their first kill, they would have to do something with the blood or the heart. This is kind of what he's talking about. These are superstitious things that you must uh, stay away from. You must not be involved in. It may seem harmless, but it points to something even greater than you're aware of. They were able to eat, uh, if we go on in verse 15, we see that they were able to eat animals that they had already found dead. Okay, roadkill or some type of thing like that. But again, they were to follow instructions for ceremonious cleaning that we had read of earlier in Leviticus. And we had saw how, uh, who was it? It was Samson who disregarded that command. Now to you and I, this seems like strange customs and commands. But there was a purpose behind it. And there was a principle that God is teaching, which we find in verse 11 and verse 14. And here's where the key is. This is where we're trying to understand what the Lord is speaking through Moses in Leviticus 17. Verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. You may want to underline it. To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, this is echoed in Hebrews 9, where it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And then we hear the phrase, And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness or removal of sin. Again, God's justice demands a sacrifice. It demands a death. Here we see the purpose of pouring out the blood in the sacrifices. And we went through this a little bit, kind of quickly as we went through the earlier chapters of Leviticus, is that the Hebrew, the Judaism, is a very bloody religion. Blood was everywhere. The smell, the stench, the sights and the sounds of the tabernacle would have been horrifying to you and I if we were to transport ourselves to that time. You and I could not handle it. We probably could not approach very close until the stench and the cries of the animals and just the noise of all that was going on. However, we must understand that the penalty of sin is death, is the shedding of of blood. Something innocent must pay its life. 
That's the principle of the substitute. That's the, the joy that you and I see is that God demands a penalty for rebelling against his holiness. But here's the joy. God accepts a substitute. In other words, we do not have to pay for that ourselves. In Leviticus, God had provided a temporary redemption plan in, over to, in a way to overlook man's sin and to satisfy his wrath. Now, a substitute sacrifice was offered in the place of the sinner, the innocent for the guilty. The substitute sacrifice was killed. Its body was dismembered and its blood was all poured out. You might recall that. Now, we're not going to belabor this point because we reviewed it already. Yet God is reminding them that any sacrifice to the Lord must follow his exact instructions and be followed. But then look at verse 14. So we see there what God, the purpose of it. For the blood is in the life and atonement. That's the purpose of the atonement is because the life is in the blood. And blood is reserved to make atonement. But in verse 15, we see the principle, the why. Why is God doing this? Verse 14, for the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats its blood or whoever eats it shall be cut off. The life is in the blood. Interestingly, thousands of years before science came to understand the importance of blood to the health of an individual, God tells Moses, for thousands of years, up to the 18th and some of the 19th century, bloodletting was used to treat a variety of diseases. It became a standard of treatment for almost every ailment. As most of you are aware of, bloodletting was the practice of making cuts on the body or using leeches to purge the blood. The ancient Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, and even Jewish and Islamic and Christian doctors used this method as a cure. They wrongly believed that many diseases were caused by plethorias or an abundance of the blood. And so they would bleed people to try to make them healthy. However, you and I know that the life is in the blood to do so to let the blood out. In some cases, they would left out almost all of the blood of the person. Most famously, George Washington asked to be bled heavily after he developed a throat infection from weather exposure. And within a 10-hour period, a total of 3.75 liters of his blood was withdrawn prior to his death from a throat infection. They didn't understand that the life was in the blood. Without blood, you just don't exist. To summarize, Yahweh instructs his people to worship in a way only he prescribed. The purpose and principle taught is that the blood shed in the atonement, and here's the key, was precious. Not that there was anything special about the animal that was sacrificed, but that accepting of the shedding of the blood as part of his redemption plan. What he's coming to, he's, I don't want you to take the atonement frivolously. I don't want to become so routine that you don't understand what is happening. 
happening. I don't want you to come immune to the, to or, or deaf to the, the bleeding of the sheep and the cries of the birds as they're slaughtered. I don't want you to become deadened to the sense of smell as you hear the blood or you feel or smell the blood and the dung and all that that would come out resulting in death. Because the shedding of blood, the taking of a life was to demonstrate the high cost of sin against a holy God. So God is taking in verse 17 and says, you need to remember this. Do not take it lightly. One wanted to understand the high cost of sin, of death, the importance of the ritual of obedience and the provision of the peace of God that the atonement represented. He knows human behavior. He knows how we behave after doing the same thing over and over. Now this brings us to today. And this connects with what you and I do today. You and I have something much better than the blood of bulls and goats that brought us redemption, do we not? We have been redeemed by the blood of the perfect, innocent Lamb, Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. We've read this verse before, but it's good to be reminded of the power of the Christ's sacrifice. Again, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 9, near the end of your Bible. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the great high priest of good things that have come, then through the great and more perfect tent that's not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place. Not by means of bloods of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification for the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who is much more valuable, much more precious, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works so that, my words, we might serve the living God. Now look at chapter 13 of Hebrews, just a few pages over. Starting with verse 10. The writer says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, speaking of what the Le Leviticus is speaking of, the tabernacle, they have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice to sin are burned outside the camp. So have you ever thought about this? In verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside of the gate of Jerusalem in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You and I must recognize the preciousness of the blood of Christ, the importance of it. The Apostle Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you, were one, you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John writes in Revelation that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the king, kings on the earth. And to him who loves us, it has freed us from our sins. How? By his blood. 
and he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God, his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And one last verse, the Apostle Peter writes in his first letter, that knowing that we were ransomed from our futile ways, inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so here's where I want to make the connection. God is telling the children of Israel, the Hebrew children in Leviticus 17, do not take it for granted. Worship me as I have prescribed. Do not falter and lead yourself to be outside my covenant or you will be cut off. Take it seriously. To you and I today, we need to take the sacrifice of Christ, our atonement, seriously. It's important to remember what the atonement has accomplished. And I pray that this just takes root in your heart. For the, the atonement has accomplished our deliverance from the penalty of sin, our justification, making us right with God. It has accomplished our deliverance from the power of sin. That's the fact that you and I now can live in, 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 in obedience to the Father. And that one day, that the atonement has accomplished, but one day we will receive the finality of it, is our deliverance from the presence of sin, our glorification. God wants you to remember what Christ's blood has done for you. We're not to take it for granted. You just say, but, but I don't believe I am. Well, there's a warning that's given to us in 1 Corinthians. For even today, God has instructed us to consider very carefully the precious blood of Christ, the atonement that has brought us forgiveness of sin and the removal. 1 Corinthians 11, it's here on the monitor. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, speaking of the Lord's supper, the communion, whoever eats or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And here's where we come to, here's, the, here's the, the, uh, the, the shadow of Leviticus there. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We see in this passage instructions similar to the principle of that, Leviticus 17. Next week we'll look at this passage again as we participate in communion. But you know, every Sunday, Monday through Saturday even itself, is the day where you and I celebrate, should consider the atonement and the power of our lives. That is the ministry that we're to be sharing others. Christ died so that you may not. But in here we see exactly what he's saying in 17 of Leviticus. Our worship, in this case the Lord's Supper, is to be done as prescribed by God. To disobey is to be guilty or to be cut off. And you and I are to participate in reverence. May we never take the atonement of Christ with a lazy, disobedient, inconsiderate attitude. May we recognize the preciousness of the blood of Christ and his sacrifice that brought us reconciliation with God. May it be so. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team just to stay down for a moment. 
I just want you to take a moment to pause, to think about what we've said. When you think of the sacrifice of Christ, is it intermingled with idolatry? Christ may be on the throne, but maybe there's something else that's also vying for attention. It's time to put that aside. Do you consider the preciousness of the blood of Christ? If not, why not? Are you living out serving the one who has ransomed you? Would you consider what the Holy Spirit may call you to do? Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's recommitment. Maybe it's just praying for more faith and grace to trust, to recognize the atonement of Christ. Then would you take a moment to pray and respond to the Spirit's work? Would you take a moment to do so? Father, you are so good to us. We are so undeserving of the atonement. Father, never let us take your worship frivolously. Let us recognize as we come here to worship, whether it's here as a body together or whether it's uh, 24-7, let us remember, Lord, that you've called us to worship as you have called us. In spirit and in truth is how you've called us to worship. Father, let us follow your instructions for that. May our worship be pleasing to you. May we celebrate your presence. May we express our love to you in a way that's glorifying to you. And Father, I pray that you would prevent us from falling into any form of idolatry, of setting something up as the object of our admiration, of looking to something else to save us. And Father, I pray that we would just recognize the wonderful grace of salvation and the cost of that reconciliation. I praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.